you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, me Martinez. While the House is getting ready to vote on a nearly $2 trillion stimulus package, California passed a smaller one of its own. We'll hear who'll get the cash and how much. Plus, Texas and California have a few things in common. Size is one. What about another? A power grid that's vulnerable to natural disasters. It's all ahead on Take Two. Stay with us. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I'm Martinez. Thanks for being with us. Coming up, after power grid problems in Texas, we check in on how California is preparing for our own extreme weather. Now, in our case, it's heat. We're going to see a tenfold increase in the amount of battery storage coming online this summer and next summer to help deal with the needs of the grid. That's just ahead. But first, it's State of Affairs, our weekly peek at politics in the Golden State. While the U.S. House of Representatives is set to vote on a nearly $2 trillion stimulus package, California went ahead with one of their own. Plus, California Attorney General Javier Becerra's Senate confirmation hearings are wrapped up. And depending on how the vote goes, it'll impact two very high-profile job openings. Today, we're joined by Christina Bellantoni, former assistant managing editor for the L.A. Times, now the director of USC's Annenberg Media Center. Also with us, Zach Corser co-director of the Policy Lab at Claremont McKenna College. Uh, Welcome back, you two. Great to be here. Greetings. All right. State lawmakers have signed a $9.6 billion COVID relief package. Christina, where might people see some money in the immediate future? Yeah, I think it's important for people to keep in mind that California was hardest hit in so many ways. Obviously, our numbers uh, from COVID were, you know, exponentially higher than some other places. And the economic effect, you know, particularly here in Los Angeles has just been dramatic. And we know that there are families who can't afford to eat and their families who are you know long unemployed and so this is a really focused effort um $600 stimulus checks um some some people won't get that depending on their income but the idea is that it's really targeted to to needs there's a lot of money for um food security and for helping people with their um subsidi- subsidizing childcare costs and you know really looking at helping these small businesses and nonprofits that have just been uh, dramatically hard hit um, by a year of the pandemic. I mean, we're, we're coming up on, on a year since our first lockdown order. And it's important, while so many other places in the country have opened up, you know, we really are very slowly lifting things here. And it's going to take quite a while for people to, to come out of it. So that's what the state looked at and um, really made an effort to shore that up, in addition to making funds illegal to um, open to people who are not in the country legally and a number of other areas. You know, Christina, the name of the person escapes me, but I remember someone said uh, not that long ago that if, if $600 makes a difference in your life, then that your life must be in real trouble, which is uh, kind of a really insensitive way to say that, you know, you, they shouldn't have those checks come out to people. But as someone who, who followed state politics for a long time, what's your take on the forces and political will that made this bill even happen in the first place? 
I mean, I look at it as a real recognition of the place we're in in the state. Um, obviously, there's politics afoot, and generally giving people money is popular. Um, and certainly, this is possible in part because there was actually more tax uh, revenue collected than they had anticipated. So um, they weren't, they didn't have as huge of a shortfall. But when we know that the economic effects of the coronavirus are going to last longer than this one year, um, and maybe dramatically longer, and maybe businesses will never reopen, and um, you know, downtown areas will never thrive again. Like those are big things and and every little dollar is likely going to help. Um, but particularly getting relief quickly to people as they also get money from the federal government might might be the lifeline that a lot of people need. And again, I can't stress it's it's not just about having extra money in your pocket. You know, it is people that really need it. And in a lot of cases, we know there are children going hungry without free lunches because they're not going to school. Um, there are food shelters that are out, um, long lines for, for people to get aid and support. And I think it's really important for all of us to remember that, uh, you know, we're bored at home and that's terrible, yeah. but there are a lot of people that um, are hurting pretty deeply. Zach, sometimes I think uh, that uh, there's some that think, well, it, it takes a pandemic for state officials to move quickly on things. But if it takes, if that's what it takes, then that's what it takes. Well, yeah. And, you know, also, it's amazing that we're in a position to do this. I mean, this windfall revenue that we're seeing is has made this possible. Um, and I, I think it's a, a strong recognition that, you know, the Washington Post called this the most unequal recession in modern U.S. history. The effects, the economic effects of the pandemic have been wildly unequal. And I think this is a recognition of that. Also, in the inclusion of um, undocumented workers. I mean, generally speaking, this is almost like a gap payment for what the federal government has refused to recover in certain ways. It reminds me of uh, Mayor Garcetti's Angelino card, where there's a recognition that there's a gap for undocumented workers who really haven't had any support in terms of federal stimulus payments, and that they're an important part of the California economy, uh, and that this... this um, this money is going to help that population that that really hasn't any had any help uh, up until now. Now, as usual with something like this, uh, we do have to look at everything uh, Gavin Newsom does uh, through the lens of a recall effort against him. Now, if that campaign gets the needed signatures to put it on the ballot by mid-March, the whole state uh, could vote on this as early as the summer. So, Zach, how much could the relief package help repair maybe any resentment that people could have toward Gavin Newsom over the way he's handled things? Well, that, that's interesting. So, like in the, as I said, the economic effects of COVID have disproportionately follow, fallen on low-income and minority residents, particularly Latinos. And you know, I would think um, that would be a population that's already with Newsom, particularly after this. I think a, a p- potential political concern, and it really depends on how the recall campaign develops, is whether or not this becomes a, a political football. That is to say, you know much like California's past and much like the current Republican Party, you know, will this be seen as uh, unfair by, you know, some Californians, particularly on the right, that uh, Newsom is focusing on undocumented workers? I mean, this is not a very sort of Trump-like policy. Um, Will that go very far in getting someone elected? It depends on how the recall election, uh, I think, well, I hope hope we have some time to talk about that uh, soon uh, today, but depends on how the recall election develops. You know, you only have to get a plurality of the votes to become governor if you decide to recall. So I think it's pretty, we're we're on uncharted territory and this could go really either way politically for Newsom. Christine, is it unfair to connect the dots the way I did, uh, you know, stimulus bill, recall effort, Gavin Newsom? 
Of course not. And, you know, I've said this before on this very show, you know, politics is inherently political, right? <laughs> and, you know, every decision is is made by that. And when you have a, a, a full party control of a government, um, all of these things matter. It's not just about Newsom. It's about everybody uh, kind of shoring up their votes. This is going to be a popular measure. But, you know, Newsom is is... I don't want to say he's in real trouble, but this is a very serious effort. There are all indications that they are taking it seriously, and this is certainly uh, not going to hurt uh, anything. And I think as you look at what the next few months may shape up to be, that's something that Newsom can point to, like relief was needed. We were tired of waiting for the federal government, so we did our own package, even though the federal government is also going to provide something that's all the better for our people. Yeah, and even if uh, Gavin Newsom is recalled, uh, Republicans have to put up a, a viable alternative. Uh, so now it seems uh, right now that former San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner, who's already started that campaign, is might be one of them. And his platform this week is really focused on school and students. Uh, Christina, what has he been saying and, and how are you seeing that message resonate, if at all? Yeah, you know, Falconer is extremely talented, and a lot of people were disappointed when he didn't run um, when Newsom was elected. And um, while John Cox has a lot of money, um, just isn't looked at in the same lens as Falconer. Somebody who's moderate um, has proven he can work with the you know both political parties, um, you know, border uh, mayor, all of those things you know are important. His uh, sort of campaign effort, you know, under the radar campaign effort, if you will, is to criticize the governor on schools and school reopening, which is an extremely complicated topic. And it's something that, you know, both has federal, um, layers to it um, that is not entirely within the state's control. It's also something that as public health conditions have vacillated so rapidly over the last year, like, I don't know that anybody has any clear idea of what's going to happen. And like, we're all angry about it. Believe me, (laughs) Um, I've got two kids at home and and many of my colleagues, and it's, it's so difficult for people who are um, needing to go back to work and then they can't or or what all of the different layers of that. But um, it is also something that resonates with people. People are angry in the state. They're angry over the handling of, of um, sort of inconsistent messaging, whether that's mask mandates or things opening and then closing and then opening and closing. And the schools are, are no exception to that. So it's a probably tactically smart position for him to, to be criticizing the governor on and, and also pretty easy for him to do so. You know, funny thing, I've heard more commercials on the radio for John Cox, the, the, former, the guy who ran against uh, Gavin Newsom the last time, talking about how bad of a candidate Kevin Faulkner is, more than Kevin Faulkner commercials for himself. So that's kind of the weird thing that I've been hearing uh, lately. Now, Zach, Christina mentions uh, schools and the debate over reopening. Uh, it, it's it's a debate that's really a fraught one here uh, on the West Coast, and Democrats are really taking the heat for not getting kids back to school fast enough. Um, is that a fair uh, argument against them? Well, look, it's these things are changing with bewildering speed. I mean, we have rapidly improving COVID conditions combined with a, a shift from the Biden administration where I think the Biden administration as put is is pushing as hard as maybe Trump was to reopen schools. And I think it, it's put leaders in an awkward position where they're having to rethink both changing conditions and a plan for bringing students back into school sort of all at once. And it's, you know, things sometimes politics doesn't move so fast. I mean, there's a lot of interests out there, particularly, I think, teachers unions that are very concerned about their workers returning to these schools and whether or not they will be uh, get preference in terms of vaccination. And, you know, will we have a fully vaccinated workforce going back into schools? And so. It's interesting. I think it's dividing Democrats, frankly. It's interesting to see the divides in San Francisco, for example, between the school board and the city and, and the fact that legis- you know they're, they're suing each other. 
Um, it, there's disagreement here, but I think, you know, everyone's going to be judged on their results this year politically. We're talking to Zach Corser, co-director of the Policy Lab at Claremont McKenna College. Also, Christina Bellantoni, former assistant managing editor for the L.A. Times, now the director of USC's Annenberg Media Center. Uh, turning to uh, Washington for a second, uh, California Attorney General Javier Becerra this week uh, faced a couple of days of tough questions in his confirmation hearing for the job of uh, Health and Human Services Secretary. Christina, remind us why he had the more difficult time of it compared to some of the other cabinet uh, nominees. There's a lot of layers to this. You know, one, California has was the foil of the Trump administration uh, for the number of lawsuits that um, it engaged in against the administration for um, the administration targeting California for its policies, for its people, all of those things, right? And Becerra was the public face of that. I lost count of how many lawsuits it was. You guys may have that handy, but it was more than 50 um, last I checked. And so, of course, it, it looks at that is inherently partisan. Um, he is partisan. He's, you know, a partisan official. Um, he's also more liberal than the president. Um, and that's something that he was continually pressed on, you know, some of the policies that he has uh, advocated both as a candidate, as a member of Congress, and then um, in his role as AG here. At the same time, it actually went much more smoothly than I think even um, the Biden administration was hoping. Um, it did seem to be very cordial. And it seems like he's headed for confirmation. I mean, the Republicans tried to rough him up a little bit, but um, sometimes when it's somebody who is in, you know, in the same uh, the same Capitol building as you, mm. there's just a collegiality that that lingers more than some others. And and I I would be surprised if he ran into any trouble. Yeah, one of the things I found interesting is that uh, his credibility as not being a doctor um, or not having a medical degree is is something that uh, was raised. But only three of the last 12 HHA secretaries have had a medical degree. So I was wondering, and, and Alex Azar, as far as I know, does not have a medical degree too. So I was wondering where that, what, why that criticism was such a sticking point. Um, Zach, Becerra helped develop and defend the Affordable Care Act. However, during these hearings, he he distanced himself from the call uh, for Medicare for all. So what does the reform or maybe the expansion of health care look like to you in the Biden White House? Well, I think Biden made it clear during his campaign that his focus was going to be on the Affordable Care Act. You know, he's was obviously vice president and a big part of the formation and passage of that bill. And I think everyone he surrounded himself with, you know, from you know, Ron Klain to Ezekiel Emanuel, these are all alums of the Biden administration who care a lot about the Affordable Care Act. So the focus is going to be on improving the Affordable Care Act, not on Medicare for all. And I think, you know, more progressive members of Congress like Bernie Sanders are maybe a fly in the ointment as we proceed here politically, where they may, you know, make a fist and basically say they're, they want more, that it's not enough simply to improve ACA, that they really do want some kind of expansive program that covers all Americans. Now, you know what? <sighs> Before we run out of time, I want to get to one thing that's kind of uh, been a theme on State of Affairs for the last, uh, I guess, since uh, since the start of the year. Now, there always seems to be a, a next chapter in the Donald Trump-Kevin McCarthy political bromance. Uh, it seems to endure every single day, and there's always a new story every week. Now, the backdrop for this weekend is Orlando, Florida, and that's the Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC. That got underway yesterday. Uh, it's titled uh, this uh, year, America Uncancelled. Now, among the uh, notable conservatives that will not be there are Mike Pence, uh, Mitch McConnell, Mitt Romney, Nikki Haley, Liz Cheney. Uh, more on Liz Cheney in just a second. But Kevin McCarthy will be speaking there along with 
former President Donald Trump, who will be making his uh, first speaking appearance since January 6th. Now, on Wednesday, McCarthy was asked if uh, Trump should be speaking at CPAC, to which he answered, yes, he should. Now, that same exact question immediately was asked of Liz Cheney, who was standing just over McCarthy's left shoulder off mic wearing a mask. That's up to CPAC. I've been clear in my views about uh, President Trump and, and the extent to which following the extent to which following January 6th, uh, I don't I don't believe that he should be playing a role in the future of the party or the country. On that high note. <laughs> All right, in case that was tough to hear from Cheney, she said, that's up to CPAC. I've been clear on my views about President Trump and the extent to which following January 6th, I don't believe that he should be playing a role in the future of the party or the country. Um, Christine, let's start with you on this. Trump is expected to speak Sunday at CPAC. What kind of a statement do you expect Trump to make on Sunday? I believe he will make clear he views loyalty as important. Um, he likes the idea of his um, himself being like part of a loyalty litmus test within this party. And I think he's going to relish that. And that's you know been reported and is no surprise to anyone that's paid attention to the things he's said and done over the last you know six years. And I expect that a good majority of that audience will eat that up. But we also know that there will continue to be that never Trump um, thread of the party. And, you know, for all the discussion about potential third parties or breaking the Republicans apart, that's sort of not logistically feasible. So I believe you're going to have a deeply divided GOP for a long time. And, you know, CPAC is emblematic potentially of where that split might become real evident. Zach, what about you? What kind of statement do you think Trump will make? Will he try to establish or reestablish, or maybe he's always been, uh, even after the election, the head of the Republican Party? I think he's going to act as if that is to say that he he's never left as being leader. And I think it's, you know, if I know my Trump by now, it's going to be a takedown of all the enemies that have been speaking out against him, quote unquote enemies. Uh, and it's going to be the start of some primary challenges, probably starting with Liz Cheney. Uh, it was interesting to see um, that Bench McConnell, when asked point blank, you know, would you support Trump in 2024, quickly said, yeah, I would if he's the party he's nominee, the party, despite yeah. the fact that he stood on the Senate floor and said the guy's a criminal. So it's it's very strange times, very, very tough sledding for Republicans right now. But Trump is large and in charge, and he's going to act like it on the stage at CPAC. So is it fair to say, Zach, you think Trump 2024 begins on Sunday, the campaign? It does with the takedown of everyone who voted to impeach him. That's what I that's what I see coming. Christina, what about you? Trump 24 campaign starts Sunday? I mean, it already started. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. <laughs> and, and and the thing is, he probably will run, right? He likes it. He likes being out there. Um, they, it will allow him to command more attention. That's uh, Christina Bellantoni, former assistant managing editor for the LA Times, now director of USC's Annenberg Media Center, and also with us, Zach Corser, co-director of the Policy Lab at Claremont McKenna College. It's sunny and 70 this weekend. You two have a great time, and uh, see, uh, see you next time. Cheers. Have a great weekend, guys. All right, there's always been a bit of a rivalry between California and Texas, the two largest states in the lower 48. And we've heard of California residents and businesses migrating east to enjoy all the tax perks. Now, one other thing we have in common is our grid being really, really vulnerable to natural disasters. But 
but Golden State is working to change that. Find out how when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and on kpcc.org. I'm e. Martinez. You've seen how extreme winter weather in Texas caused a near failure of the state's electrical grid. This after power providers who are not required by the state to deliver electricity during extreme weather went offline, leaving millions of Texans in the dark without heat. Now, while California regulates its utilities differently, we also experience extreme weather that places stresses on our grid. One recent example were the rolling blackouts from last August as temperatures reached triple digits. Now, All of this makes us wonder if our utilities are prepared to deal with the inevitable next scorching stretch of high temperatures. Well, the California Public Utilities Commission, or CPUC, just voted to require the state's utilities to expand their supply capabilities for next summer in case of another heat wave. Here to explain that ruling and how prepared we are is Clifford Rechtschaffen, a commissioner on the California Public Utilities Commission. Clifford, what has California been doing to protect its power grid from failure during extreme weather? We have directed our utilities to secure more resources. And we're also looking to expand programs that both conserve electricity and pay customers to reduce and manage their use in a way that helps relieve stress on the grid during the worst times. Things like turning down their air conditioner for a couple of, uh, by a couple of degrees for a couple of hours or changing the time when they run washers and dryers. These efforts are already bearing fruit. We're going to see a tenfold increase in the amount of battery storage coming online this summer and next summer to help deal with the needs of the grid. Now, the CPUC approved a plan in mid-February allowing California's utilities to increase their capacity. In case uh, we get a summer like we had last year, can you summarize what exactly you asked utilities to do to prepare? We asked them to procure more resources and expedite the resources that we had previously ordered them to procure. We also looked at changes in rules for the energy markets that run our system and our grid operator, the independent system operator has been adopting some of those rules. We're also telling them and we're looking at changing some of our planning assumptions to make sure that we get things right. What's happened now, more and more people are using solar to power their homes and businesses. And the time of the day that the grid is most stressed has changed. It used to be that it was in the early evening or later evening when people used their air conditioners the most. But now it turns out that the toughest time, the most stressed time is when the solar resources go offline because the sun goes down. Mm. People are still using their appliances, especially their air conditioners at very high levels, a period between 6, 7, and 8 p.m. That's the stress period. So we're telling the utilities, plan for that period. Make sure you have the resources available to meet that two-hour period, especially uh, so that we don't have a recurrence of what happened last summer. Yeah, and I don't think I, I would have thought that that's the time when people are relying on that uh, maybe more than other times. You know, in an overall picture, Clifford, when it comes to planning, you mentioned how uh, we know that when it gets close to August, we have to pay attention to all this. But is it getting to the point uh, from January to December where you almost got to be prepared all the time? 
We certainly have to be prepared all the time for extreme events. We know that the wildfire season in California is almost year-round, and of course that poses great stress on the grid. It results in sometimes the use of public safety power shutoffs to avoid trees or other vegetation coming into contact with our power lines that could trigger a major fire. We also have risks that we need to deal with during the winter. We fortunately haven't experienced anything like Texas did last week, but in an extremely cold situation, one that happens maybe one in 10 years, there's a possibility that we might have to cut back the gas that we sell to industrial customers or large commercial customers. But we, those customers are aware of that risk and they prepare for it. Mm. Residential customers and small businesses are always prioritized. They would be the very last to lose service. And we have a whole set of rules that tell the gas utilities that they have to manage their system in a way that they're prepared to meet these extremely cold conditions. They need to store gas in storage fields, maintain pressure on their transmission lines and and so forth. We're talking to Clifford Rechtschaffen, a commissioner on the California Public Utilities Commission. Considering, uh, Clifford, how big California and Texas are as states, uh, what, if any, similarities are there between how our power grid is run compared to Texas? The differences are much greater than the similarities. They have a, a completely deregulated market. They don't require their utilities to maintain extra capacity in the event of shortages or extreme weather. We do. They're not linked with the other grids. We are. They didn't require their utilities to winterize their plants or equipment. We require our utilities to harden the grid to deal with weather-related events. Their solution to a lot of the problem is just to let the market take care of things and prices rise as much as possible in order to provide the energy that's there. That doesn't always work. You saw in the in the crisis last week that energy prices were through the roof and some customers are going to be faced with a $15,000 energy bill for the week. So we're very, very different. We do we do share something that's very important in common. We, we both have to prepare for extreme events. During the meeting where you voted on this, there were a number of uh, public commenters uh, who said the, the state should be focused on switching over to renewable energy, not incentivizing utilities to expand capacity for resources such as natural gas. Here's a cut from a, a caller from Oxnard. For us, extreme heat days are only more and more common every year, and we knew, and we know that hotter climates make gas plants more pollute more. It's a toxic cycle. So, what do you say, Clifford, to that uh, to that comment when it comes to this being a toxic cycle? Well, those are very important concerns. The important thing to keep in mind, though, is we are on a trajectory to get off natural gas. We've been doing that faster than any state in the country. We have reduced our carbon emissions from the power sector by 50% over the last decade. We're going to continue to to do more, even more going forward. The decision the caller was commenting on said that our preference is for solutions like batteries and efficiency upgrades, not new gas plants or, or gas upgrades. It's important to keep in mind this is a very short-term fix needed to deal with an immediate reliability concern. Hopefully, we'll never even have to use those backup gas resources. When it comes to gas and to what uh, the caller was saying, um, despite some of the things that people don't like about gas, Clifford, is it just still to the point where gas is just simply more reliable than anything else? It's not that it's more reliable. It's that it provides certain characteristics that help complement wind and solar, which don't run 24-7. Gas run all the time, and it can start up in a quick way so that if there's an immediate surge in demand, a gas plant can fill the gap. Batteries can do the same thing. The problem yet right now is that batteries typically only last for four hours. So we have a period of time when we may need to meet peak demand, as I said, during that six to eight period, 
where gas plants may be used to fill in the gap or to provide backup power. But there's no question that as we move further into the future, we're going to rely less and less on gas plants, use them more less and less frequently. I don't think we're going to build new gas plants in California. We are very much on a trajectory to clean energy resources. Do you think that uh, we are moving fast enough to phase out gas? There's a lot of devil in the details. There's a lot of cost, potential disruption, and we have to be thoughtful and realistic about how we implement the changes. We're moving as fast as any state in the country. Right now, we are basically two-thirds of our electricity is carbon-free, either wind, solar, geothermal, hydroelectric, and a little bit of nuclear. Mm -hmm. We're moving very, very fast, but given the urgency of climate change, probably not fast enough. Yeah, because I know that uh, California has some very strict climate goals to reach in the next 25 years. And already we've heard from the state auditor that said uh, we will not reach them at this rate unless we cut greenhouse gases even faster. Clifford, how can we do this while maintaining consistent power supplies for residents up and down the state? We're planning for it. We're planning for a power supply that meets expanded electricity needs, one where we have millions of electric vehicles on the road and we have millions of homes that have electric appliances for heating that that currently rely on gas. So we are planning for a lot more electricity to be on the system and we're planning to make that uh, system resilient. The auditor focused on one aspect of our comprehensive climate programs. There are many aspects that include transportation, buildings dealing with so-called short-lived climate pollutants from agriculture and wastewater treatment facilities. We're full speed on lots of fronts, and I think we're going to get there if we redouble our efforts. It may not be through one thing in particular, but there are many other complementary programs that will help us get there. That's Clifford Rekshaven, a commissioner on the California Public Utilities Commission, talking to us about the ability of the state's power grid to handle extreme weather. Clifford, thank you very much. Thank you. You walk into a supermarket, walk through the aisles, picking out some groceries, then you stand in line, go through the checkout, and head out the door. That very simple outing that we take for granted as shoppers is a landmine for the people working in the store, and that's why there's been a call to pay them like heroes. Yeah, you've heard it lately, Hero Pay. Find out all about it when Take Two continues. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm Martinez. Across California, battles have been brewing between local governments and the state's grocery industry. The issue? So-called hero pay laws that give grocery workers a temporary raise during the pandemic. City council members and county leaders say workers deserve compensation for taking huge risks on the job. But grocery employers are fighting these mandates in court. KPCC's David Wagner has been following this story, and he joins us now to discuss the latest developments. David, let's start by uh, hearing about what's happened so far. What parts of California already have these hero pay laws? Well, after a couple of votes this week, it looks like grocery workers in the city of L.A. and in unincorporated parts of L.A. County are going to get a temporary raise. 
The L.A. County Board of Supervisors passed their Hero Pay Ordinance on Tuesday, and on the same day, the City Council voted in favor of their plan, which does still need a final vote to go into effect. By some estimates, these city and county mandates could apply to nearly 30,000 workers. And outside of L.A., Hero Pay laws are already on the books in places like Long Beach, West Hollywood, and Oakland. How do these Hero Pay mandates work, David? Who gets them, and how much money are we talking about? So in L.A., these mandates cover frontline workers at grocery and drug stores. These workers are required to get an additional $5 per hour on top of their existing wages. And these mandates only apply to larger chains, you know, places like Ralph's, Vons, Food for Less. Smaller mom and pop stores are excluded. And the requirements are temporary. They're only slated to last for about four months. In other places, the pay, you know, sometimes is a bit lower. For instance, in Long Beach, the mandate is four bucks an hour, not five. But the rules are fairly similar from place to place. It's a pretty big step for local governments to require this kind of raise. What was the discussion like when cities took up these proposals? Well, you know, most local lawmakers were strongly in favor of putting more money into the pockets of workers who've no doubt faced, you know, incredible risks over the past year. Grocery workers are coming face to face with lots of people every day. Some of those customers don't want to wear masks or follow safety rules. Thousands of workers in L.A. have gotten sick during the pandemic. Some have died. And, you know, in L.A., these workers are disproportionately women, people of color. They're often earning close to minimum wage. The argument made by people in favor of hero pay is basically these workers deserve hazard pay. Here's Supervisor Hilda Solis, who co-authored the county's mandate. Grocery and drug retail workers have served their communities despite the ongoing danger of being exposed to COVID-19. And because of them, they have kept the county's food supply chain running. You know, proponents also pointed out that grocery companies have earned record profits during this pandemic. For a few weeks last year, many companies did offer premium pay, but they later took that off the table. And those in favor of these zero pay laws say it's time for companies to again share that windfall with workers. Were there any lawmakers opposed to these mandates? What do they have to say about these plans? You know, there were obviously not enough to overturn any votes, but some people asked why this only covers some frontline workers and not others. You know, they said retail workers at places like Walmart and Target. They also pointed to county employees in many cases. They said these folks are also heroes, but they're not going to get this hero pay. Supervisor Catherine Barger cast the loan no vote in L.A. County. I feel that today's motion doesn't address all our essential workers. It addresses a small sliver of our essential workers. The vast majority of those deemed essential under government health orders do not receive a bonus pay. Barger also worried that these mandates could lead to higher food prices in grocery stores or layoffs. We've also seen some grocery stores planning to shut down because of these new laws. Is that a concern for uh, those who voted no? Definitely. You know, they said they didn't want a repeat of what happened in Long Beach. Shortly after the city council there enacted Hero Pay, the grocery giant Kroger announced plans to close two stores in the city. The company said these stores were already underperforming, but the Hero Pay law was the final nail in the coffin, making it impossible for them to keep the stores open. Now, grocery union leaders see things differently. They say the move was retaliation against workers for speaking up, arguing for fair pay. But certainly, you know, the prospect of more stores closing during this pandemic in response to Hero Pay laws is a concern for some lawmakers. I know this issue has already gone to court. Uh, What's happening on the legal front in these fights? Right. An industry group called the California Grocers Association has filed lawsuits pretty much everywhere these laws have cropped up, and it vows to do the same in other parts of the state. The CGA sued Long Beach 
pretty much immediately after the city passed its form of hero pay. And earlier this week, they had their day in court. The CGA was asking for a preliminary injunction to halt the city's ordinance. They argued basically this mandate singles out grocers unfairly, and it makes it impossible for them to bargain with workers over pay and compensation. What did the judge have to say about that? So he didn't buy that argument. He said employers still have ways of bargaining with workers, and he did not want to override the powers of local lawmakers to pursue a mandate like this. So he denied that request for an injunction. The case is still ongoing. There's no final decision yet. But for now, grocery workers in Long Beach are still going to get that $4 per hour pay bump. So what's next for this issue? I mean, we're going to see these mandates spread to other parts of the state. Well, this week's court decision could make other cities feel more comfortable pursuing hero pay laws. We've seen these proposals be taken up for consideration in parts of Orange County. We'll see what happens there. The California Grocers Association, though, shows no signs of letting up. They plan to appeal that decision in the Long Beach case. And they say these laws don't do anything to keep workers safe, but will lead to higher food prices and more store closures. That's KPCC's business reporter David Wagner filling us in on grocery hero pay laws. David, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. You know, I say this all the time, but every weekend for the last few weekends has seemed to be sunny and 70. That's the forecast. So what are you going to do? I mean, things are still closed and you probably still should stay inside, but there are options. And the cool kids at LAist and KPCC.org have come up with a list. Find out what that is when Take Two continues. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and available most places where you find your podcasts. I'm e. Martinez. Netflix today released its first report assessing the diversity of who appears in its shows and movies and who makes them. Now, in short, there's been some improvement and the streaming service does better than some big studios, but the company still has a long way to go, especially when it comes to women. KPCC's John Horn has been following the latest. John, I mentioned that uh, this is the first time Netflix has examined how diverse its programs are. Why is this a significant step? Well, first of all, there's Netflix's global impact. They just passed 200 million subscribers worldwide. So I don't think there's any question that the series and the movies that Netflix distributes are really influential because a lot of people are watching them. So Bella Baharia is Netflix's head of global TV. And here's what she said this morning about herself and why representation among Netflix content is so important. I'm Indian, woman of color, growing up, never saw myself, right, represented, never saw anybody on TV, right, or film who looked like me. Um, I take it very personally, you know, when we talk about the invisible part, right, of women of color and what that means, because I, I know what that feels like. So a lot of studies before have looked at how the big studios and the legacy TV networks have done in terms of diversity, 
but streaming services like Netflix aren't usually included in those big studies. So Netflix decided rather than wait to be included, why not go ahead and they commission their own report. Now, Netflix tapped us Stacy Smith, founder and director of the USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative to conduct this study. Why is she the right person to tackle this for Netflix? Well, she is really the expert when it comes to these kinds of studies, and she's really fearless. I mean, she'll say what the facts are, regardless of how they're, you know, how they land. And all of her previous work has looked deeply into who creates content and who's in it. Do women have speaking parts? Do underrepresented filmmakers get a chance to direct or produce? How are LGBTQ characters depicted? What are the storylines? So it's it's really a deep dive. And they have a team of analysts that look at a lot of different factors and really go through every show, every script, and give you, you know, real data about who's in it and who's behind the camera. All right. So what did Stacey Smith's team look at? Well, they looked at two years. They looked at the 2018 and 2019 calendar years for Netflix, and that included 126 movies and 180 scripted series. And they basically did the same tests. Who is making the movies and series, and how does the streaming service compare to the overall industry? In what areas, John, is Netflix uh, making progress? Well, they were already a little bit ahead of the studios, and they have been for a while. And if you look at some specific numbers, you would say that when it comes to female leads, so more than 50% of Netflix films and series in 2019 had girls or women in starring roles. And if you compare that against another sample, which is the top grossing 100 films from 2019, only about 43% of the studio films featured women in leads or co-leads. And 35.5% of all Netflix leads during that span came from underrepresented groups, you know, black actors, Latino actors. And that compares to about 28% in the top 100 grossing films. And then they also do really well with, you know, different kinds of tests about who is behind the camera, you know, what kinds of people are making content. That isn't to say they they have it all uh, cinched up, though. Where else uh, in terms of work does uh, Netflix need to improve on? Well, they're doing good, but, you know, they're not doing as great as, you know, the population of the country. So of film directors at Netflix, 23.1% were women, and that's way higher than the top grossing box office movies. But obviously, the country is not made up of 23.1% female uh, people. So, you know, they're ahead of the industry, but certainly they have a long way to go. And then if you look more closely at women working on series, like producers, writers, and directors, Netflix is actually trailing the industry, which itself has a pretty poor track record. So for the last year's study, 2019, fewer than 17% of Netflix's series uh, were produced by women. In the industry outside of Netflix, the figure is more like uh, 40%, so almost double. So tell us about uh, the people behind the camera. How's Netflix doing there? Behind the camera, only 16.9% of Netflix film directors were from underrepresented groups compared to about 20% for the top 100 theatrical movies. Ted Sarandos, who's the co-CEO, said in a blog post that while Netflix productions have improved black representation both above and below the line, other groups are still behind. We still have notable representation gaps in content for Latinx, Middle Eastern, North African, 
American Indian, Alaskan Native, and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander communities. So this is important because, you know, Netflix is a global business and they're serving audiences around the world. And if you look at Latinas, they were absent from about three quarters of Netflix films and missing from more than 65% of Netflix series. And I think it's important too to note here that Netflix doesn't just produce content. So sometimes it buys completed films and series And when you're not making the thing that you're putting out, you don't have a lot of control over who is making it. So there's a new Netflix series called Emily in Paris. It's about a woman. Her name is Emily, and she's in Paris. They had 10 episodes in the first season, and all but two were directed by men. Wow. All right. So what about representation for groups outside of racial and ethnic identity? Well, they don't do very well with people with disabilities as co-leads or leads. Um, About a quarter of the U.S. population defines itself as living with a disability, and just about 5% of Netflix stories had leads or co-leads with disabilities. Here's something else that Bella Baharia, who again is the head of global TV for Netflix, said on the topic of LGBTQ representation. The lack of gay parents, because that's not the world what the world looks like. So that the lack of gay parents sort of in our shows is something that to me is a very clear sort of takeaway. John, as, as part of the reports released today, Netflix also announced the Netflix Fund for Creative Equity. What is the objective with that? And is it enough of a big step? Well, it's certainly a big step. I mean, it's $100 million that will be allocated over the next five years. And it's not just within Netflix. It's for organizations that help develop underrepresented communities to train them, people uh, help people find jobs in TV and film. And Netflix is also committed to doing an update of this study every couple of years through 2026. So, yeah, I mean, the important thing is to develop new talent because you can't hire people if they aren't getting a chance. And that's part of the problem in Hollywood more broadly, that it's very hard to find a black woman director if no studio has ever given a black woman director a job. So it's a way to kind of get a toe in the door and make sure that the talent pool is expanding rather than shrinking. That's KPCC's John Horn. John, thanks a lot. Thank you, Abe. Finally, if you need a break from the world and need to get away from it all temporarily and safely, then we've got you covered. I'm KPCC's Leo Duran and A. Martinez. How are we going to celebrate our one-year anniversary? You know, one year since I haven't really seen you in person to share these great weekend <laughs> events. It's really been that long, listeners out there. Yeah, I think I've sent you many uh, 8x10 headshots of me. What have you done with them? <laughs> That's right. They look really good in my paper shredder. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, as my own gift, I actually got three of the best events we've collected for this weekend. All right, so what's something I can do if I need to stretch my legs and leave the house for a while? Okay, so remember live performances? That was kind of a thing. How nice it was to see people take the stage for something cool. Well, tomorrow afternoon, there is this special live performance you can go to, but this one is taking place inside a parking lot. The modern dance troupe Benita Bikes Dance Art, they take over the parking spaces of the Tierra del Sol Foundation in Sunland. 
This is for the premiere of their work called Benches. It's all about where you get to pretend you're in a park for the day to people watch as dancers rag, shuffle, boogie, and more. When you want to go, it is free. It is also outdoors, but make sure to RSVP. Just head to our events page on LAist and find the link. All right. What if I'm on my couch being a couch potato and I want to take part in something cool? Okay, so there's this cool documentary about the life of the late singer Ramon Chunky Sanchez. He was this icon in the Chicano rights movement who started as a farm worker, and kind of over time, he became this mainstay at Cesar Chavez's side during rallies and marches. So this film covers the time all the way up to him receiving the country's highest honor in folk and traditional arts. This is presented through La Plaza de Cultura y Artes. And afterwards, the film's director, Paul Espinoza, takes part in a Q&A with you, the audience. That one starts tonight at 7, and it's free with an RSVP. All right, finally, Leo, one last thing I can do. I feel the need to celebrate. All right, so put on those dance pants. I'm sure they still fit after a whole year in quarantine. (laughs) Uh, Tomorrow is the virtual African-American Festival, and this one's hosted by the Aquarium of the Pacific. There's going to be a whole day of African-American music, dance, storytelling, and historical displays. Expect some really cool performances of like breakdancing, storytelling, West African drumming, tap, and more. It's all online, and that's going to be free too. Now, there are still a bunch more events to go to online or in person, socially distant. Find out what you can do this weekend by heading to our site, laist.com. That is L-A-I-S-T dot com. Plus, if you want to, you can follow me on Twitter, at Leo Has a Cat. Those poor dance pants will be ripped apart at the seams. That's KPCC's <laughs> Leo Duran. Leo, thanks a lot. All right, talk to you later, eh? All right, that's it for Take Two this week. Our producers are Itzi Quintanilla and Julia Paskin. And Julia, welcome back to Team Take Two. She started off as an intern for Take Two, and now she's back. Glad to have you. Now, uh, Phoenix So also helped us out with production. Leo Duran directed the show today. Take Two is engineered by Hasmik Pagosian, and our senior producer and editor is Megan Larson. If you missed uh, any part of the show, any part of the show this week, just head to wherever you get your podcasts, and there we will be waiting to be heard by you. Uh, Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back Monday at 2. Marketplace is next. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.